Well, in our sermon series, Blessings Through the Basics, we turned a corner last week. We had started off January considering what it means for a person to become a Christian. I think that's worth a quick recap. Let's imagine that we have a friend. Call him Gary. Gary has just become a Christian. What is true of Gary now? Well, remember, being, becoming a Christian is not like joining the Rotary Club. It actually means that Gary's entered into a whole new life. He has been regenerated, born again as a child of God. He's been converted. Gary has turned from sin to God, repenting of sin, believing in the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's been justified. Gary's been counted righteous in God's sight by faith. He has received the righteousness of Jesus Christ as a gift. And he has been and is being sanctified, which means he's been united to Jesus Christ. And with Christ, he has died to sin and been raised to walk in newness of life. Gary has been made holy. He is being made holy. And one day... One glorious day, he will be made holy. So Gary can say, like Paul does in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. All these glorious things have happened to our friend. There's a sense in which everything is new. So much has changed. But you know what? There's still lots of things that haven't changed. Gary still has a job at his local roofing company. He's still married to the love of his life, Amanda, but the challenges in their communication that first led him to return to church haven't just suddenly disappeared. He's still got two kids. His daughter's a junior in high school. She's so smart, but she's been having difficulty with some friends. His son, in sixth grade, he's been having some run-ins with his teacher this year. His family's coming to church with him. They like it, but they're still trying to figure out what they think about the gospel. Gary's still got a mortgage to pay. And things have actually been a little tight lately. And now Amanda's telling him that their son's going to need braces. His relationship with his dad is still challenging, especially now that his dad's starting to have more serious health problems. And he's got his two best friends still, but it's frankly gotten harder to relate to them since he became a Christian because Gary's definition of what it means to go out and have a good time is a lot different than it used to be. And on top of all this, Gary's very aware that his own sin isn't just curling up into a ball and surrendering. It's putting up a real fight. So, all that's hypothetical, of course. But what's my point? What's different and what's not different? Gary's become a Christian. He has changed. His situation has not changed. He himself is new. His circumstances aren't new. But Gary is eager to live the Christian life as a faithful follower of Jesus. So how does God want him to do that? That's the question we're turning to now. 
And what do we see in Scripture? We see that the Christian life is to be lived in total dependence upon God. The Christian life is lived in total dependence upon God. Now, for most of us, that's a pretty radical shift. Most of us, before we came to Christ, prided ourselves in our self-sufficiency. We didn't like the thought of being dependent on anyone. What is the Vermonter's creed? I'm all set. We wanted to stand on our own two feet and not be beholden to anyone. And so we conveniently ignored the fact that we are creatures, totally dependent on our Creator for absolutely everything. It is not by your own power that you're sitting there right now breathing in and breathing out. You are not making your own hearts beat. You did not make yourself grow up and become strong and have the ability to work so as to feed yourself and your family. God himself gives to all mankind life and breath in everything. In him we live and move and have our being. Acts 17. It is he who is sustaining your fragile lives every moment Psalm 103 says, As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it, and it's gone, and its place remembers it no more. Our days are a mere breath. And the fact that you're sitting here breathing is because God is giving you breath. And yet you and I, in our madness, refused to acknowledge this. And we pretended that it is by our own strength and our own skill and our own vitality and good old common sense that we sustain our own lives. Whereas we have nothing, we are creatures totally dependent upon God for life and we refuse to acknowledge the fact. Now, we also want to stand on our own two feet when it comes to morality and spirituality. Our natural condition is we believe ourselves to be morally upright. We draw a circle with all the good people on the... We put all the good people on the inside and we put all the bad people on the outside and we firmly believe that we're inside the circle. That's why so many people are offended by the message of the gospel when they hear it for the first time. What do you mean I'm morally bankrupt? What do you mean I'm a helpless sinner, unable to do what is right, totally powerless to be a good person, and unworthy to stand and face God? That's not me, we say. But the gospel is gently, sometimes not so gently, but gently insistent, It comes to us and it says, Poor fools, you say I need nothing, but in reality you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Revelation 3, 
Won't you fess up? Won't you come to your senses and acknowledge your sin? Friends, we have nothing. We are sinners, totally dependent upon God for spiritual life. Now, when God first opened our eyes and brought us to the truth, we confessed this. We confessed our utter dependence on Him. We looked to Jesus Christ. We looked to Him, crucified for sinners, able and willing to save sinners. And we cried out, because finally we understood we needed it. And we cried out, Lord, save me. I am poor and needy. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. We abandoned our insane illusion of self-sufficiently and we desperately called on the name of the Lord. If you're in Christ, this is what you did. That's how you started out on the Christian life. And what you need to understand is that that is how you must continue to walk in it. You must be dependent. Beloved, even though you have become a Christian, talking to those of you who have. Even though you've become a Christian, you are still a creature and still a sinner. First thing's never going to change. The second thing will. But you're still a creature and you're still a sinner. And that means that you're still subject to the weakness that comes with being a creature and a sinner. That didn't change when you became a Christian. You're weak. You need God. You need His help every moment of every day. And you do yourself no favors, child of God, by trying to deny this or trying to live as if it isn't true or even to wish that it wasn't true. It's not how God set up the world. To live for Christ, weak in yourself and dependent on His strength, That is God's good plan for you. The Apostle Paul learned this. He relates this really interesting story about himself in 2 Corinthians 12. He tells the church that God once granted him an amazing gift to receive a vision of heaven itself. He saw heaven itself. And it was such a wonderful and glorious gift that God actually had to do something to protect Paul. See, Paul was still a sinner. And this vision might easily have become an occasion for sin in him. Paul writes, So to keep me from becoming conceited, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. See, Paul needed the suffering. He needed the suffering this thorn produced because he was still a creature and still a sinner. God didn't give him that thorn because he had sinned, but to keep him from sin. It made him weak. But he welcomed the weakness. He goes on, he says, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, 
so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul accepted weakness. He even embraced his weakness because it made him dependent on the power of his strong Lord Jesus who was working powerfully within him. That, friends, is how we must approach the Christian life. Which would you prefer? Your own power or the power of the resurrected Savior? You can only pick one. Now, what does it look like, practically speaking, to live a life of total dependence upon God? It means entrusting yourself to Him by being devoted to the Word of God and to prayer. You might be helped with a little bulletin insert which kind of goes through my main points here. First, let's look at your need to be dependent on God's Word. This can hardly be overstated. Christian, you need God's word for your very life. Unless you think that's an overstatement, that is what Jesus knew to be true of himself. See, after his baptism, Jesus, who was fully God but fully man also, was driven out into the wilderness by the Spirit to be tempted by the devil. Why did the Spirit drive him out? Well, because Jesus had to be made like us in all things. He had to experience the same temptation to sin that you and I experience. But he had to overcome it in order that we might be saved. So Jesus spends 40 days and 40 nights in the desert fasting, eating nothing. And he was hungry. And it says, the tempter came to him and said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become bread. But he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. See, Jesus, in his hour of profound weakness was totally dependent upon God. He was not self-sufficient. He was relying on his Father. And we know it because of how he clung to the Word of God. He needed the Word of God more than he needed bread. He did not place his trust in food, but in his Father. Because his Father is truer than food is. Listen, child of God, you too need God's word as much and more than you need food. You won't live without the one, you won't live without the other. Without the word of God, you will fall prey to the devil. You will lose sight of the way, you will drift away from Christ, and you will perish. God's word is necessary for you to effectively work out your salvation. God's word is his ordained means by which you will do so. 
See, last week we saw that your growth and holiness, it's God's work in you. And yet it involves your own strenuous effort as well. Philippians 2 again. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Why? For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work according to his good pleasure. And the tool that God is using and that you must also use so that you can be fashioned into his likeness is the word. Here's how. Use it to instruct you, to instruct you in the way of holiness. Because you're still a creature and still a sinner, you cannot trust yourself to know what is right and true and holy. And so you need to have your mind continually renewed by the word of God. Let's see that in action in Ephesians chapter 4, 22 through 24. If you notice, I'm not going to have you turning to text today. There's just a billion texts, so I'm just going to mostly quote them. But this is Ephesians 4, 22 through 24. I'm indebted to my mentor, Peter Kroll, for this material. See, Paul says, you're to put off the old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in righteousness and holiness. Here, friends, is the process of change. Put off the old self, renew your mind, and put on the new self. In other words, you could say it, stop disobeying, adopt God's perspective of the world, Start obeying. And watch the change mechanism. It's not just stop doing that. Start doing this. It's you're able to do that because your mind is renewed in the gospel. It's renewed according to God's word. And Paul immediately gives us some examples. For instance, he says, Therefore, having put aside falsehood, let each of you speak truth with his neighbor. Why? for we are members of one another. So put off, putting away falsehood. Put on, speak truth with your neighbor. Stop lying, start speaking truth with your neighbor. How? Renew your mind with God's word. Remember that you are members of one another. Peter Kroll says, it's not enough for the compulsive liar to simply stop telling lies. He must replace lying behaviors with truthful ones, searching for opportunities to speak the truth to help others. And the only way to do this from the heart is to let the Bible change your view of other people. Don't see them, your brothers and sisters in Christ, as adversaries that you have to defend yourself against, but as members of your own body whom you're compelled to help succeed. Put off. Transform. Be transformed in your minds. Put on. How do we put off the old self and put off... uh, Put off the old self and put on the new self by having our minds transformed by the truth of the gospel through the word. See, the word instructs us in the way of holiness. And that allows us to put off sin and put on righteousness. That's the process of change. 
How else must you depend on the word of God to work out your salvation? Well, you use it to combat temptation directly. Mary Margaret read it. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. That's what the Lord Jesus himself did. Three times in the wilderness, the devil came to him with temptations which seemed reasonable. They seemed to make sense. They seemed good. Let's face it, temptations usually in the moment do seem reasonable and good, don't they? The devil doesn't tend to tempt you to do something that you're not going to, in any sense of the word, enjoy. But each time, Jesus saw through the lie. Because he'd set before his eyes the word of God. And so every time, he answers the devil with scripture, replacing the devil's lie with God's truth. And that enables him to see the world rightly and to overcome the temptation. Something else. Use the scriptures to make sin odious to you. In the moment of temptation, sin feels sweet and life-giving. But that is a lie. In reality, sin is bitterness and it is death. Use God's word to renew your mind so that sin becomes more and more ugly, more and more repellent to you. You want to be helped, for instance, to put off sinful anger? Maybe that's the thing you really struggle with. You struggle with sinful anger. You need, God, help me. How, how can I be helped to put off this sin, sinful anger? Well, let the word of God remind you. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. And do not give the devil an opportunity. Do you really want to let the devil in? You want to issue him an invitation to rip apart relationships within God's church? That's what unprocessed sinful anger does. And now maybe you can see how ugly and how horrible your venting is. And having been made to see how horrible it is, you can put it off. See, the word of God helps us see the sinfulness and the wickedness and the horribleness of sin so that you're disgusted by it and you can actually turn from it. Use God's word to warn you from straying. There's lots of warnings in God's word and they're powerful and they're scary and they're necessary for our souls. Because they'll keep us from wandering from the path. They're signposts at the edge of the cliff saying, turn around. I was helped this week as I was, I was pedaling away on my stationary bike. I'm trying to get back into that. I was pedaling away. I was listening to Ezekiel chapter 3. Do you know what I heard? The Lord says to the prophet, Again, when a righteous person turns from their righteousness and does evil and I put a stumbling block before them, they will die. The righteous things that person did will not be remembered. 
But if you do warn the righteous person not to sin and they do not sin, they will surely live because they took warning. I was sobered. What will be the consequences, I thought, if I were to turn from righteousness to evil? Nothing good I have done will be remembered. Everything will be twisted and tainted by my subsequent actions. Who knows how far-reaching the effects would be? That's hard to think about. But I need to think about it. I need to use God's word to warn me from straying. Use it to encourage you with the promises of life. Here's the flip side of the last one. The wonderful promises of God can spur you on to holiness so that you keep going even when the times are tough. Promises like Galatians 6, the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Or 1 Corinthians 15, 58, Paul says in light of the glory of the coming resurrection, he's painting this bizarrely wonderful picture of how glorious it will be when Jesus comes back and transforms us. And he says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast. Now, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Because the reward's coming. Use it to reveal your wonderful Savior. See, friends, as you devote yourself to the word of God, it shows you Jesus. Over and over and over again, from every page, it shows you Jesus. It speaks to you everywhere about how he willingly gave his life for you upon the cross as the atoning sacrifice for your sin. And over time, as you study this book, you will see his glory and his beauty more and more and more and more. And as John Piper says, you become what you behold. As you gaze at his glory, beholding it as in a mirror, you yourselves are transformed from one degree of glory to another, bit by bit by bit, as you see Jesus in the word. Now, does it feel like that's what's happening every time you reach for your Bible in the morning at O dark 30? Does it feel transformative every time you listen to another sermon somewhat distracted as you pass kids, crayons, and goldfish? Nah. It doesn't always feel glorious. But it is. It shows how you, you're being changed as you're being brought to see Jesus with the eyes of faith. Show us Christ, show us Christ. Oh God, reveal your glory through the preaching of your word. Dear Saint, you are weak. I am weak. We are totally dependent. And you need the word of God to sustain your life in Christ day after day. It's necessary for you to work out your salvation. And that's why you must actively take it in. 
so as to live by it. That means, number one, attend to it when it is preached. Now, if you expected me to first go to personal Bible reading, I get it. But that's not what I put in the place of first importance. In first importance, I'd put that you attend to the Word of God as it is preached. See, millions of believers throughout history have been unable to read the Scriptures for themselves. But God has always sustained and kept His people through the preaching of the Gospel Word as local churches gather to hear it. Now, why do I put attend the word as a first importance? Actually, because of what God says to me. See, I'm subject, as a pastor, I'm compelled by the command in 2 Timothy 4. Paul says to Timothy and to me, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and by his kingdom. Preach the word. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. I must preach the word. Now, if that's the charge to me and to BJ, what do you think is the corresponding charge to you? Attend the word as it is preached. Attend by being physically present and attend by having your ears opened with a heart ready and eager to hear and receive it. Be present and be listening. Beloved, I'm going to say it this strongly. The only time you should miss the preaching of the word of God on the Lord's day is when you are providentially hindered from coming. Not because you're traveling Find a church, wherever you are. Not because you have something else that you are choosing to do. Not because you're tired. Not because you don't feel like it this morning. Attend the preaching of the gospel. Because you need it for your very life. Now, if you are providentially hindered, from sitting under the word and coming to worship, that's okay. Don't be distressed. Several Sundays ago, I stayed home because I was sick on Saturday night. It would not have been good to share that particular bug with you. But my wife and my kids didn't have any signs of sickness. And they came. Now, it would have been fine for us to, to... to decide to keep the whole family home. But they weren't sick. And so they came. Because they need to hear the word of God preached. What's my point? Brothers, sisters, and you unbelievers also, attend diligently to the preaching of the word of Christ. You depend on it for your very life. And no, a recording is not the same thing. Thank God for recordings. It's not the same thing. Now, downstream from this, yes, yes, read the Bible yourself. 
Of course, read it regularly. Read it all the way through. Read it again all the way through. Read it until you have the joy of coming upon a little obscure passage and saying, oh yeah, this bit. I remember this bit. Right? It's fun when you actually start reading the genealogies and you're like, I remember that guy. Read it with your household. Deuteronomy 6. These words that I command you today shall be upon your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. And talk of them when you sit in your house. And when you walk by the way. And when you lie down. And when you rise. Come together with others and talk about the word like we do at home group. Study it to understand it better. Because you know what? It's not as straightforward reading as light fiction. It's not your mystery novel. It's not Harry Potter. It takes effort. It takes effort and it's so worth it. It's mining for treasure. Memorize it. Memorize it. There's been this wonderful little project going on informally among the men this past year to, read, to memorize the book of Titus and to memorize some passages in John. Larry Lane, bless him, has been spearheading that particular effort. Store up God's word in your heart and let it protect you from sin. Let it move you toward holiness because you have it at your disposal. Meditate on it. Think about biblical truth throughout the day, letting it renew your mind so that you won't be conformed to this world, but be transformed more and more into Jesus' likeness. See, we're we're just coming back to what Jesus said. You shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. All right, dear ones, there's something else. What else does it mean to live practically? totally dependent upon God. Devote yourselves to the word. Devote yourselves to prayer. See, we need God's help if we're going to make it to the end of our journey. Think about Christian in Pilgrim's Progress. Starts the journey, ends the journey seven chapters later. Think about how God is working in him overseeing every step of that journey, how much he needs the power of God to keep going, how many dangers, how many dangers inside of himself, how many dangers outside of himself. He needed God. You need God. That was even true of the Lord Jesus himself. In the days of his flesh, Hebrews says, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard. He was heard. Jesus conquered. And right now he's seated in blessedness and glory, as are the saints who have faithfully followed him and have already gone to be with him. But he remembers the struggle... He remembers the fierceness of temptation. He knows the suffering. He knows the appeal of the thought of giving up the fight. He knows what you're going through. And he has help for you. Hebrews 4. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us 
hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. See, you need, beloved, to draw near to the throne of grace because prayer is necessary to effectively work out your salvation. Now, you may not believe that. Or our actions might show that we don't believe it because we actually don't pray. And so we get up and we approach the day. In practice, we presume that we ourselves are somehow strong enough to make it through another day on our own without falling miserably away from Jesus. Now, our God is good and kind. And he sometimes gives sustaining grace even when we do not ask for it. But why should we presume like that, beloved? Why, when he offers his help to those who ask? Are you grown so holy that you know for a fact you couldn't fall today? I'm not. See, as John Calvin wrote in the Institutes, he says, We see that nothing is set before us as an object of expectation from the Lord, which we are not enjoined to ask of him in prayer. So true is it that prayer digs up those treasures which the gospel of our Lord discovers to the eye of faith. He's wordy. So am I, but I can maybe summarize this. God's word tells us to expect a wealth of good things from the Lord. And he always commands us to pray for those things. He calls us to pray for the things he has promised. Because he uses means, remember, he uses means to work his sovereign will. And he uses the prayers of his people as one of those appointed means to accomplish his will. So, it's not overstated to say, for God to preserve you and other believers in faith, you must pray. For God to move you forward in holiness and put sin increasingly to death, you must pray. For God to work salvation in unbelievers, you must pray. I want to get personal for a minute. My father could remember how, as a child, he played on the floor as my great-grandmother, his grandmother, sat nearby. She was praying out loud for the salvation of her grandchildren and her grandchildren's children. I don't even know her name. She, of course, didn't know my name. But she was praying prayers of salvation And my sister and I are here and in Christ. Will you tell me that God did not work in answer to her prayers? Two years ago, Mary Margaret came into my office, my sister. She told me she had breast cancer. We talked, and then we prayed. 
And right then we began praying that the Lord would use this cancer in the lives of her children to bring them to saving faith. And since that time, Evelyn and Julia and Peter are now professing faith in Christ. Will you tell me that God did not work in answer to those prayers as a necessary means? Skylar Genest keeps a record of the things that we pray for at men's prayer. He just keeps a running list. He, never, he just never deletes it, just adds a new one. About a month ago, he, he calls me over. He says, hey, I want to show you something. And he scrolled up, scrolled up a few years back. And there, do you know what I saw? I saw names that kept coming up month after month after month. Names like Ben Ashline. Sandra Ashline, Carly Merchant, Ethan Walters. We were praying regularly for their salvation, and now they're in Christ. Will you tell me there's no connection? Now, God is sovereign. Not everyone on that list has yet come to Christ. And God is not obligated to save every single person that we pray for. But he has obligated himself to save some. And we're praying for them. Because other folks are on that list now. Friend, Jesus teaches us to pray, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Will you say that prayer is unnecessary, superfluous, Let's pray. Let's pray for the salvation of lost sinners. And remember this also with respect to sanctification. Guess what? You're not strong enough to fight sin by yourself. And neither are your brothers and sisters. And the devil is raging and prowling around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Are you stronger than he is? No. But... Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. So resist him, firm in your faith. How? By prayer. By prayer. Ephesians 6. Take the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also praying for me that words might be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. So pray for yourselves. Pray for those in your home groups. Pray for your pastors. And consider these sobering warnings from James 4. You have not because you ask not. So are you finding yourself beaten down by remaining sin? Are you not seeing the progress and holiness that you would like? Are there victories that you do not yet have, child of God? Is it possible that you do not have because you do not ask? Ask and call others alongside to pray for you. The effective prayer of a righteous man accomplishes much. Call others to pray on your behalf. What does our church have because we do not, or what does our church not have because we do not ask? Now there's a haunting thought. 
What does RGC not have because we are not asking? Let us instead beseech the God who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. Let's ask him for great things. Thou art coming to a king. Large petitions with thee bring, says the hymn. Now, we must actively engage it. It doesn't happen. Just happen. And there's several forms of prayer that the scriptures show us. Number one, obvious, praying by yourself. Jesus commends and commands his followers to pray by themselves in Matthew chapter 6. And he promises that the Father who sees what is done in secret will reward such prayer. And the Bible also shows us praying with other believers. So pray together. Pray with your household. Pray with your spouse. Pray with your friends. Pray with your children. Teach them to pray. They need both your example and your instruction. And pray with your church family. Pray at home group. Pray when we have a large gathering of prayer. Yeah, you pray at home group. Yes, you listen to everyone else praying. You pray at home group. Bless your brothers and sisters as they hear your prayers and are helped to pray. And you know what? If it's not particularly clear or it's a little confused, you know what? Does anyone care? Does the Lord care? No. Come out and pray at the times we have set aside as a congregation. We have one tonight. We're going to take significant time at the evening service to pray for the ongoing health of our church. We're going to beseech the Lord for sustaining grace. Will you be there? Would you be, I should ask it this way. Would you be there? Come and pray. Finally, let us cultivate the discipline of living all of life. Old Latin phrase, quorum Deo. Before the face of God. Paul says that we're to pray without ceasing. What do you, what do you mean, Paul? How can we do that? Well, I think part of it means that we, we can go through the day in constant communion with God. He is always there. But we can cultivate our conscious awareness of him being always there, always right beside us, ready to be conversed with and appealed to with just a flash of thought. It's like a little kid who, who isn't quite thinking about it, but who knows and is aware and is comforted and is secure because his dad's right there in the room. Let us have that as a goal for prayer, to be in constant communion with our God. See, friends, we we just need God's help. We're just dependent. We will not live without his help. But our Lord sits upon a throne of grace, He's ready to hear. He knows what we're going through. And he's ready to provide help. If we'll ask. And that's how the Christian life is lived, day in and day out, folks. We're new creatures in Christ. But we still face all manner of challenges and obstacles and assaults that come from living in a broken world. And we've got an enemy that's raging and longing to take us out. 
We must live in total dependence upon our mighty God whose power is perfected in our weakness. Practically speaking, that means to devote ourselves to the word and to prayer. Let's pray. Lord God, these things are, are, are weighty, but they're so wonderful because they are your appointed means to keep us on the way to heaven. And we want to stay on the way to heaven, Lord. And so stir our hearts to devote ourselves to prayer and devote ourselves to your word. Let us in that way depend on you for all things. In Jesus' name, amen.